Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 104. Two Globes, A Fortune, A White Friar, and Hope. The London Playhouses, 1587-1642, Part 2. Last time, I spoke about the London theatres of the Elizabethan period, taking them in chronological order of their construction. In this episode, I'm going to continue from where I left off and look at the history of five more Elizabethan playhouses. I mentioned last time how each playhouse was at least a little different from its predecessors. For the indoor theatres, the size and shape of existing buildings dictated what could be done in terms of stage area and seating, and each of them was unique. For the outdoor theatres, there was more scope, but the more famous playhouses followed very similar designs. The Theatre, The Rose and The Swan are what we think of as the classic Elizabethan playhouses. But for all of their similarities, as you heard last time, their level of success varied and each was the brainchild of a strong and determined individual, the original theatrical entrepreneurs of the modern period. So let's conclude this review of the Elizabethan playhouses and start part two with perhaps the most famous playhouse of them all. Although the Globe Theatre officially dates from 1599 when it opened for performances, I've already covered its very earliest mention in the record. It was built from the parts of the theatre, which owner James Burbage, his carpenter Peter Street and their fellows, took apart in Christmas week 1598 and transported to Street's warehouse on the river by Bridewell, the former palace of Henry VIII that had become an orphanage and would go on to be a prison. The woods sat there until spring, when it was put onto barges to cross the river and the building of the globe properly commenced. The site was marshland, just behind the crowded strand of land on the south bank of the river, and in front of the farmland that tracked away from the water. As you probably know, the Thames is a tidal river until well west of the City of London, and lands east of the city were particularly prone to flooding until relatively recent times. To accommodate the new theatre, the land needed to be drained and protected from the high tides. An earth bank was thrown up on the riverside of the building, and various works to channel water away from the site were undertaken as part of the construction. The carpenter, Peter Street, was in his mid-forties when Burbage gave him the commission to dismantle the theatre and rebuild it as the Globe, and he had a working life of carpentry behind him. Street's father had also been a carpenter, and although he died when his son was only ten, Peter followed him into the Carpenters' Guild as an apprentice in his sixteenth year. He was contracted to a master in the usual way for the eight-year term of the apprenticeship, but his exceptional talents were spotted by the guild master Robert Maskell, and he bought him out of the contract and took Peter under his wing. He became a full member of the guild in 1577. Although it can't be proved conclusively, it's generally assumed that Street was involved in the building of the theatre. He and Burbage were fellow parishioners in Southwark, and Street would have been in the last year of his apprenticeship when the theatre was put up, so it's certainly very possible. In 1596, when James Burbage acquired the refectory building at the Blackfriars, with the intention of making it into an indoor theatre, Street acquired a woodyard and a warehouse just across the river from the old priory, and conveniently connected by a narrow footbridge close by. Again, there's no proof, 
but it's assumed that these two events are not coincidence, and it was Street who was employed to build the interior galleries and the stage at the second Blackfriars Theatre. The woodyard and warehouse on the river made perfect sense for Street as he sourced his wood in Berkshire, directly west of the city and on the river. After felling, the wood was prepared into planks and beams, spars and the like, and then transported by Thames Barge to the warehouse near the city. As you know, the Blackfriars project was delayed because of local objections, but in 1608, with the King's men about to take up residence and all of those objections quashed, Street, now a proven theatre builder, returned to the project to complete the fitting out. But back in 1596 and into 1597, Street may have been disappointed by the turn of events as James Burbage died and his sons Cuthbert the solicitor and Richard the rising actor took over matters at the theatre. You will remember that the demands of the landlord over the granting of a new lease were complicated and protracted. Take a trip back to episode 89 for a reminder of the full story there. But the end result was Street getting a new commission to dismantle the theatre and rebuild it in Southwark. Street was a central mover in that somewhat shadowy move and was said to assure everybody inquiring as his men worked on the site that this was just a matter of refurbishment, even as the huge oak spars were being dragged away from the site by cart. It seemed unlikely that anybody was fooled, but the landlord was away in the country for Christmas and then the courts were slow to open up after the holiday, so everything useful was in storage at Street's Yard by the time any legal moves could be made to stop this activity. The legal arguments over the matter went on for years, and Street is mentioned in the early papers, but he never suffered any punishment over the matter. The Globe was not an exact replica of the theatre, but a larger playhouse, so Street spent the rest of the winter prefabricating the additional wooden elements needed for construction. That spring, he was in charge of the groundworks needed to drain the site and set the foundations of the building. Ben Johnson's comment in verse that the building had to be forced out of the marshy grounds makes it sound like this was no mean feat. Once the groundworks were completed, it took just ten weeks to put the wooden frame and the roof in place, which just left the filling in with lath and plaster to complete. It was, again in Ben Johnson's words, the glory of the riverbank, and was completed in the summer of 1599 at a cost of £700. The opening production was most likely Shakespeare's Henry V, so it's no surprise that the prologue to that play draws attention to the building, the wooden O that needs the added imagination of the audience to justify the events about to be portrayed. The fact that the reference to the theatre space is not a glorifying one has led some scholars to suggest a later date for the opening, maybe September 1599, when we have mention of a production of Julius Caesar by a Swiss tourist. But the first unquestioned mention of a performance at the Globe is for Ben Jonson's Every Man Out of His Honour, which was performed in December 1599. Unfortunately, Peter Street's plans for the Globe haven't survived, but available records for the area have been closely studied and a picture pieced together. A three-storey amphitheatre, with capacity for 3,000, is the general consensus. It probably used the polygon design to achieve an essentially round shape, which was about 100 feet in diameter. The yard in front of the stage on three sides was a packed earth floor, with a layer of nutshells pressed into it to give it a hard base. 
The stage was five feet above the floor of the yard and accommodated at least one trapdoor. To the rear of the stage, the roof was supported by two pillars and probably decorated with the sky and clouds. This area is referred to in contemporary documents as the heavens. It probably included a hatch to allow performers to descend as if from the sky and onto the stage. The stage itself was 43 feet wide and with a depth of about 27 feet. As you would expect, the back wall of the stage has two or three doors and probably an inner stage used for more intimate moments, although some scholars cast doubt on the importance, even the existence, of this area. Certainly, there was a balcony for musicians and actors when required by the action of the play, and an exit to the backstage tiring house. The second and third levels included galleried seating, with the usual controlled entrances for the collection of the additional fees. Some of the very upper floors may have been devoted to managers' offices and storage, but here we really are straying into the realms of pure speculation. As I mentioned previously, the Globe was sited near the pre-existing but smaller Rose Theatre, where the Admiral's men had been having years of success. But the Globe soon took over from the Rose as London's go-to playhouse, not least because of the rise of the players who acted in it, the King's men, and the works of the great playwrights of the time, not least Shakespeare, who wrote for it. This first iteration of the Globe had a relatively short life. On the 29th of June, 1613, a performance of Shakespeare's Henry VIII was being given. In the play, a cannon located in the upper reaches of the theatre in the area known as the Machine Room was being used for a sound effect. It misfired and set light to the thatch of the roof, which soon spread to the wooden structure itself. Ben Jonson summed up his feelings about the globe and the events of the fire in his poem An Execration Upon Vulcan describing how the reeds of the thatch roof fueled the rapid fire that easily overcame the building's rather soggy setting. But, O oh, those reeds, thy mere disdain for them made thee beget that cruel stratagem, which some are pleased to style but thy mad prank against the globe, the glory of the bank, which, though it were the fort of the whole parish, flanked with a ditch and forced out of a marsh, I saw with two poor chambers taken in and raised, ere thought could urge this might have been. See the world's ruins, nothing but the piles left and wit since to cover it with tiles. Although burnt to the ground, all the audience got out unharmed, apart from one man who was slightly hurt when his breeches caught fire. Fortunately, someone nearby had the sense to douse the flames with a bottle of ale. Eyewitness Sir Henry Wootton reported that it took less than an hour for the flames to completely consume the theatre. It took a year to rebuild the globe, but more of that later. When Philip Henslow began to see the writing on the wall for the rose, brought about by the success of the globe, changing tastes and perhaps the looming issue of his lease renewal, he decided that his best course of action was to build a new theatre in a different part of town. In partnership with Edward Allen, they bought a 30-year lease on land in Shoreditch, west of the original sites of the theatre and the Curtain, but close by. They paid £240 for the lease and then hired Peter Street with £400 to build their new theatre. This was less than he was paid to build the Globe, but it seems likely that Henslow paid directly for at least some of the timber, which may not have been the case with Street's earlier commissions. 
The total cost of the land and the building is estimated to be just over £1,300. Henslow, for all the rivalry between the playhouses, was impressed with Street's work on the globe. In the contract for the work on the fortune, the specifications are couched in terms of the work being done as it was at the globe, which, given that the fortune was specified as a rectangular building rather than a circular one, seems to have left Peter Street with quite a free hand in the design details. Street followed his previous practice of prefabricating parts of the construction as much as possible at his base in Berkshire, while the groundworks were being completed in London, and then shipping the parts downriver. Having started the project in January 1600, the foundations and prefabrications were completed by early May that year. The completed building was handed over to Henslow and Allen in August. The contract for the building of the fortune is a very important historical document. Not only does it give us more detail about the size and shape of the fortune than any other Elizabethan theatre, but by inference gives us some of the details about the globe. Thanks to the contract, we know that the foundations were made of brick and lime, with each timber side wall being 80 feet long on the outer side, with the inner walls being 55 feet long. It was a three-storey building with galleried seating at every level. The stage was 43 feet wide. As with other theatre projects, there were local objections, and Henslow had to rope in his patron, Charles Howard, the Lord Admiral, to appeal to the Privy Council for permission to build, and he paid a very sizeable sweetener to the local parish to smooth over their concerns. By late 1600, the Admiral's men were in residence, and remained there for a residency that ran into three decades, but it wasn't without trouble. By 1612, there are records of complaints against the theatre for allowing the dancing of jigs after a performance, something that seems to have been viewed as likely to lead to trouble in the crowd. And that may not have been unjustified. A year later, a city gent was knifed by a farmer at the Fortune, and the theatre soon gained a reputation as a lively place, but one edged with danger. In 1616, Henslow died, and Edward Allen took over the sole running of the playhouse. It's possible that his name, despite his acting days being long gone, was helping to keep the fortune alive. Although its reputational issues continued, there are also mentions of visits by foreign ambassadors and other dignitaries to the theatre, so it's a very mixed picture. In December 1621, the theatre burned down, taking the company's props, costumes and play scripts with it. Allen immediately committed to rebuilding the playhouse and formed a syndicate of 12 investors to share the estimated £1,000 cost. Allen himself only took one share, which was a bit tokenistic, but he was getting on in years by then and heavily involved with the Dulwich College that he had founded and financed and which would become his enduring legacy. It was said that his interest in founding the school came about after his performance as Dr Faustus caused people to believe that real devils had been conjured up on stage, and that either he or Christopher Marlowe had formed their own pact with the devil. Now if that was true, it's surely more likely it was Marlowe who would have happily signed a pact with Lucifer. But Alan apparently took the concern seriously, and this was his repentance, genuinely required or not. Details of the rebuilt Fortune Theatre are scant, but it appears that it was built in brick, with a lead-lined tiled roof and, most significantly, it was round, modelled on the old wooden playhouses, 
but obviously from a fire safety point of view, much advanced. The new Fortune Theatre opened in March 1623, but the new start couldn't shake off its bad reputation. Three years later, there is a report of what appears to have been a major riot there, and a year after that, a protégé of the Duke of Buckingham was lucky to escape without injury when the crowd turned against him. Allen died in November 1626, and the masters of Dulwich College inherited the lease to the theatre. By then, the Admiral's men had become Lord Palsgrave's men. They moved out in 1631, to be replaced first by a troop known as the Actors of the King's Revels, and then shortly after, in 1635, by a troop previously associated with the Red Bull Theatre, a nearby venue that had a similarly bad reputation for raucous audience behaviour. In May 1636, Plague closed the theatres for 16 months, and the 12 sharers, with no income, got into serious debt with Dulwich College, who still wanted their rent paid. After the resumption of theatre in October 1637, the Red Bull troop returned, but fell foul of the authorities in 1639, when they were accused of portraying a religious ceremony on stage. Despite the anti-Catholic message of the play, the troupe were fined a whopping £1,000. By that time, any religious depiction on stage was not tolerated, whatever its messaging. The troupe was replaced at the Fortune by the old Admiral's Men troupe, now under the patronage of the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, who would be Charles II, eventually. The theatre continued to operate up to 1642, when Parliament issued the order closing all the theatres. There were some reports of occasional performances there, even after that point, but stricter orders were issued in 1649 and enforced at the Fortune when soldiers were sent in to rip up the stage and tear down the galleries. The building went into decay, and by the time Charles was restored to the throne in 1660, the masters of Dulwich College determined that the building was unsalvageable and had it torn down. The Whitefriars Theatre is one that it's likely you have never heard of, and I'm afraid I can't add much to that here. All we know is that poet Michael Drayton, who was a nephew of playwright Thomas Lodge, leased part of the old Carmelite Priory buildings just west of the city in 1608. With partner Thomas Woodford, he had an indoor theatre built there, and performances by the King's Revels children were given, but they didn't last long. This was just about when the child companies dropped out of favour, but the company and their later iterations are recorded as performing plays by Johnson, Beaumont and Fletcher and others until 1613, when they were replaced by an adult troupe under the patronage of Princess Elizabeth, the daughter of King James. It is suggested that the plan was for them to use the Whitefriars as a winter home and the Swan in the summer, following the pattern established by the King's men working between the Globe and the Blackfriars. But the lease at the Whitefriars was at least temporarily lost, so the plan never took off. There are odd mentions of performances at the Whitefriars until 1621, when the current landlord was noted to have turned out the players but there are also previous mentions of the building being in poor repair, and it seems that theatrical activity there was, at best, intermittent, until that final demise. In June 1606, Henslow took a major decision to demolish his bear garden in Southwark and to build a new theatre on the site 
to be called The Hope. He again turned to Peter Street for the building project. Street's career had gone from strength to strength, and his specialist knowledge of building wooden playhouses seems to have served him well as he functioned as an advisor on several high-profile building projects. He was involved in the building of the first permanent royal banqueting hall in 1606, probably because it was a theatrical-style setting that was required for royal occasions. He's also recorded as working at the Bridewell Palace, which at this time was being used as a school and an orphanage. He may also have been involved in creating the sets for some of the masks held in the court of King James I. In 1596, he was involved in a court case where he described himself as a member of the Queen's household. Now, he may have been building up his part there. His opponent in court certainly thought so and accused him of making this claim only to divert attention from his dishonest practices. Whatever the case, he was certainly one of the foremost London builders of his time, a time that was about to end. He died in May 1609, before the building work on The Hope was started, and Henslow replaced him on the project with another carpenter, Gilbert Catherines. It was 1613 before building work could start on The Hope, and it wasn't completed until the following year. That relatively long building period compared with other theatres of the time was, it is suggested, because the globe was being rebuilt at the same time and manpower and possibly available materials were in short supply. The design for the Hope was a copy of the Swan rather than the Globe or the Rose. The Rose was perhaps too small and the design rather dated, and as the Hope was physically very close to the Globe, Henslow probably wisely judged that his new playhouse needed to be distinctively different from its close neighbour. And different it would be because it was designed not only for plays, but for bear-baiting too. The contract calls for a playhouse, fit and convenient for all things, both for players to play in and for the game of bears and bulls to be baited in the same, and also a fit and convenient tyre house and a stage to be taken away and to stand upon trestles. John Stowe, who was keeping contemporary records for what would become his multi-volume history of England, recorded that plays were performed on Saturdays, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays at The Hope, and bear-baiting on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In the records, The Hope is often simply referred to as the Bear Garden, remembering its original and still continuing function, despite the fact that in the early years at least, play performances outnumbered the animal baiting days by at least three to one. The need for the removable stage also meant the design of the inner stage had to change. The contract specifies that there should be heavens on the inner ceiling, but no pillars as support, not only for the practical reasons of the removable stage, but the need not to disrupt the audience view is also mentioned. The Hope opened at the end of October 1614, with a production of Ben Jonson's Bartholomew Fair. Johnson didn't think much of the new theatre, calling it as dirty as Smithfield and stinking every wit. Smithfield being London's livestock market, and still is today, although not nearly so smelly. Although the Hope saw residences by Lady Elizabeth's men and then Prince Charles' men, until about 1619, the actors never seemed that comfortable with the shared space, no doubt agreeing with Johnson's assessment. Although we don't have details of the hows and wherefores, animals must have been housed at the theatre prior to their appearance in the baiting ring, 
so the atmosphere was presumably quite a bit different from the other playhouses. When Prince Charles' men moved out, the hope became devoted to the baiting of animals, fencing competitions and other non-theatrical entertainments for the next 20 years or so. The Hope was another victim of the playhouse closures in 1642 at the start of the Civil War, when animal sports as well as playing were banned, and the edicts were reinforced under the Puritan regime in 1656. It was only at that point that the last seven bears held captive at the Hope were shot, along with the dogs and the cocks that were also held there. Probably best not to imagine the conditions those poor animals had been kept in for such a long period. The final fate of the building is uncertain. It may have been torn down in 1556, but animal sports seem to have resumed there in 1660. Perhaps it was in a new building, and whatever it was, it certainly wasn't a playhouse. Following the fire that destroyed the globe in 1613, the theatre was rebuilt and reopened a year later. We don't have details of the specifications of the rebuilt theatre, but it appears in an etching by Wenceslas Holler made in 1647 and based on observations he made when he visited London earlier in the decade. The globe is shown as a circular building with two staircases and a ring of windows around the gallery level. The roof line is quite different from the other theatre designs, being raised and extended upwards at one end, suggesting that the machine room in the roof space was much enlarged compared with earlier theatres. That in turn suggests that the stage area sitting underneath the machine room must also have been somewhat different. The Swan and the Fortune underwent changes to extend the stage and the heavens above it about the same time, so it seems likely that the rebuilt globe also had a larger stage, meaning that the stage and the yard took up about more or less equal halves of the available area, and the heavens above the stage now probably extended to the galleries on either side of the stage the full width of the house. The machine room had been an important backstage feature of the playhouses from the earliest days. The use of sound effects in plays for the period is well documented, not least through the events that destroyed the first Globe Theatre. But the machine room also allowed for visual effects to be hung through the slots in the heavens and decorative drapes to suggest location to be unfurled from above. Surely there is some inheritance here from the traditions of the mystery plays and the legacy of the technical achievements to which they aspired. For stage effects of the period, we tend to think of thunder and lightning as Leo wanders the moors or the witches stir their cauldron. But the sounds of a battle or visual signs to denote the court of a king or the wealth of an eastern potentate were, I think, just as likely and as common. It's just a tantalising glimpse as to what might have been at the globe. And sadly, little else is known for certain of its internal decorations. Of the second life of the globe, little else is recorded, but it continued as a playhouse until the inevitable closures in 1642. The building was pulled down a couple of years later, and housing was built on the site. Theatre returned to London with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, but the heyday of theatre in Southwark and the theatre of the outdoor playhouse was past. The theatre of the Restoration honoured its past, but was, in many ways, a very different beast. 
It was 328 years later when actor Sam Wanamaker set up the Shakespeare Globe Playhouse Trust with the aim of reconstructing the globe. It was a further 19 years after that when the foundations of the original theatre were rediscovered, which was an enormous help in the design of the reconstruction. That reconstruction was done by using traditional building methods and materials wherever possible, and the theatre opened to the public in 1997. The building is not on the exact spot where the original stood, but close by, and it is not an exact replica. We don't have enough information to make that possible, but it is, for sure, a good estimation. And to see a play there written by Shakespeare or his contemporaries is quite an experience. When we think about the plays of the period, we always need to think about the performance spaces that they were written for. Theatre in London certainly found its home in the purpose-built playhouses, but it also managed to survive and at times flourish in the converted buildings and, of course, at the court. Battling it out with the other entertainments of the time, theatre became the predominant artistic form and it burned bright not least because of these buildings and the opportunities they provided. Actors, other theatre makers and theatre managers could become rich on their craft because theatre was truly a mass entertainment in a way that it has never been since. Those large buildings with huge audience capacity were what were needed for the time, for all the angst that those gathered crowds caused to those in authority. It would be nice to think that one day more detail to help us fully understand the Elizabethan theatre buildings will emerge, but for the moment at least, the lack of detail remains a frustration. But then, that also allows us to speculate and to project into the period in an endless discussion of how it might have been. So, not all bad. Next time, it's back to the plays and the playwrights. A significant gap in the story of the earliest Elizabethan playwrights that I have yet to fill is in the shape of Thomas Kidd and the Spanish tragedy. So next time, I'll be looking into his life and that play. It stands alone as the only extant example of his work, and what a shame that is, because this play is seen as one of the most important of the period and highly influential. After all, it introduces that favourite theme of the Elizabethan theatre, revenge. In the meantime, please join the Facebook page or group or find the podcast on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with new episodes and other theatre-related things. You can find details of ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. It's only me here keeping the podcast going, so any encouragement or support is very gratefully accepted. If you do feel able to help out with the costs of running the podcast, then please head over to Patreon where you will find additional content for a small monthly fee or a one-off donation. You can find all the details about that on the website. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp@gmail.com at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.